Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 193. How do you avoid the bottlenecks of data processing systems? Is it possible to build tools that decouple storage and computation? This week on the show, creator of the Pandas library, Wes McKinney, is here to discuss Apache Arrow, composable data systems, and community collaboration. Wes briefly describes the humble beginnings of the Pandas project in 2008 and moving the project to open source in 2011. Since then, he's been thinking about improvements across the data processing ecosystem. Wes collaborated with members of the broader data science community to build the in-memory analytics infrastructure of Apache Arrow. Arrow avoids the bottlenecks of repeated data serialization and format conversion. He shares examples of Arrow's use across the spectrum in tools like Polars and DuckDB. Wes advocates moving from vertically integrated tools toward composable data systems. We discuss his work on IBIS, a portable data frame API for data manipulation and exploration in Python. IBIS supports multiple backends by decoupling the API from the execution engine. This episode is brought to you by Posit Connect. Posit is dedicated to open source data science tools, and Connect helps teams manage all their data science publishing. Learn more at pos.it slash realpython. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Wes, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you. There's just a variety of things I'd like to talk about. One of the major ones is going back to this theme that I see in a lot of the talks that you do about how when you created Pandas back in 2008, that you kind of were dealing with the state of the industry at the time, the state of the hardware that people had at the time, and what data maybe looked like at the time. And Maybe we could talk about, you know, what were some of the limitations you were facing back then when you originally started the project and why it's led to you having to really think about what we're doing today and where things need to go? Sure. Yeah. Happy. Yeah. Happy to talk all about that. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's been, um, it's been almost 16 years now. And, and so obviously a, a lot has changed, not only in the world of computer programming, data science, there was barely, we called it statistics and statistical computing and just data analysis back back then. But I think at that time, I was really concerned with just making Python a language where you could succeed at doing really basic data work. And so a lot of the themes of the recent decade have been around how do we make it interoperable, scalable, performant. And if you go back 16 years ago, well, you know, those things like performance and scalability and interoperability and all those things, those were like 
kind of pipe dreams <laughs> yeah at that point in time just things that we might have dream- dreamt about but but getting to the point where we could read csv files and do basic stuff that you might do in excel or that you could do in r in python and with a reasonable api yeah like that was that was already a lot of work and so it's just it's taken a long time to get to the point where we can start thinking about some of these higher higher order concerns but yeah no it's been a very interesting a very interesting process to not only build the software but then build the build the open source communities around the software and basically scale the scale the community around these projects and so it's been an incremental thing but already you know the passion of my career so I've I've really enjoyed the work and uh, it's good giving me a lot of satisfaction to have the opportunity to be involved in in these projects and to to do things that have impact in in the open source world. Yeah. So you led the project till 2013 and then turned it over to the open source community. What was some of your thinking behind that or maybe what factored into your decision there? Yeah, I've I've definitely spoken about my history with the Pandas project and how it was. I was working for a quant hedge fund, and I convinced them AQR to to let me open source it at the end of two thousand nine, and then I started giving talks in the Python community, and I dropped out of grad school to work on Pandas in two thousand eleven. I wrote my book Python for Data Analysis, and then in late twenty twelve, I teamed up with my uh, colleague from AQR, Chung, to found Datapad. And we raised some a little bit of venture capital and uh, moved to San Francisco to, to build a startup. And we intended to use Pandas and the early Python data stack to build a visual analytics tool with Python programmability. Yeah, we had, you know, it was very fun, very fun project. But I, I realized that I wasn't going to have time to be a full-time open source maintainer on Pandas. And at that time, Jeff Reback and Philip Cloud had really stepped up and started doing a lot of development work in the project. And these were people that I'd met in person and felt like represented the represented the values of the project for people that I trusted to uh, to manage the community. And they were really eager to do to do that work. So I felt really comfortable handing over the reins of the project to them. So it was pretty natural, like a pretty natural transition. And, you know, at some point, like, we did create a governance document for pandas and you know established me as the quote unquote benevolent dictator for life similar to how you know Guido van Rosum was was the benevolent dictator for life for python up until recently yeah but in practice i've rarely had to exercise the role of the bdfl like breaking up impasses or uh, disagreements in the project and so it's i think as far as open source communities go it's been a really healthy really healthy community and has um has has grown, you know, 2000 thousands of developers over the last 10 or 11 years since I haven't really been actively involved over that period of time. Yeah, definitely. I you know, I I think about it and it's just the tool that is always mentioned in data science as far as the python side and it has such momentum you might call it, you know, like as far as the the, the amount of projects that are using it and then sort of a history also and sometimes i think about that like as the team that's heading it currently looks at adding features it's like this massive bus that's traveling down a one lane road and if it's going to make any turns <laughs> it's going to maybe take some effort to try to like okay you know you know let alone like turning something around and, and moving it 
So I, I, I wonder about that, like adding features and, and modifying things. Has that been your experience as far as trying to, to make changes? Yeah, it's from what I've observed from the outside, it's been it's been hard to change things in pandas, firstly, because I think one of the reasons that pandas is both loved and reviled is that it it takes responsibility for so many different things in one really large, really large code base. Yeah. And so that that has led to these massive monolithic releases where you know, everything, including, you know, plotting and value formatting, like formatting tables in the console and like all the stuff that Pandas does are part of this gigantic monolithic code base. But there's also like the internal API surface area of all the things you can do with Pandas data frames. I mean, if I could, you know, self-deprecate or criticize my decisions 15, you know, 12 or 14 years ago, I think that in some ways Pandas data frames do too much or like there's some things that they do like multi-indexes and multi-level row indexes are one example of something where all, you can do all these cool pivot table things and you can reshape these massive multi-dimensional data sets with data frames yeah and a part of me feels like if you look at what polars is doing they said no we're not going to do row indexes at all like row indexes make things too complicated we want polars to be simpler and focus on performance and scalability and not do all that row indexing craziness that that pandas does and honestly I, I feel like that might be the right you know in retrospect like that's probably the right right it would have been the right approach to, to put all that pivot table reshaping stuff into a separate data structure that's concerned with like making pivot tables and data presentation and things like that you know it just wasn't obvious at the time and so it's only with hindsight that you can really say that i think another thing I would have liked to have been able to do that I think wasn't feasible early in the project is that pandas should probably be broken up to into, I don't know, six or eight or 10 sub packages that are each released yeah. independently. So you could have some of the components of the project that, that can move with a higher velocity. So for example, if you make a change to how values are formatted in the console or in the IPython or Jupyter notebook, um, that that part of the project could be released a lot more frequently, whereas code that affects the internals of the library and how data is managed and some of the algorithms and core computations in the library, like that would be a little bit more slow moving and would have maybe quarterly releases or release twice a year, something like that. But, you know, it's worked for the project. It's it's over 15 years old and, you know, still growing like crazy and it's being used by tons of people. It, it isn't trying to be the, you know, the fastest or the most scalable library out there, but it's, it's become a, a Swiss army knife. You don't use a Swiss army knife to cut down, cut down trees. So, but you can use a Swiss army knife to do a lot of different things. And, and Pandas is, is a lot like that. Yeah. And so I think the fact that it's become this um, kind of multi-tool that everybody can learn how to use and they can solve all kinds of different data problems with it. It can be a, like a great unifier across data teams. Like everybody knows how to use Pandas. And if you've got, larger data sets or you need to do something more scalable you can use polars or you can use duckdb or you can use your sql data warehouse and that was kind of the one of the motivations for creating ibis was to to bridge the world of data warehouses and sql based systems and and pandas and it's only in you know the more recent years that 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 project has started to take off as data warehouses and SQL-based systems have seen a renewed surge of adoption and uh, kind of taking over the enterprise. I got like 
three or four points there. <laughs> I was literally going to ask you about like, you know, how would you have changed things if you were able to start the project now? And you've addressed many of those thoughts already with what you just said. I also want to address the, the idea of this multi-tool and that's how Python is thought of in so many ways as a programming language is that, you know, the kind of goofy joke that people sometimes say is that Python's the second best programming language at everything, you know, <laughs> like it, it may not be specialized into one or two different areas, but you can kind of use it for, you know, whatever you need to be able to do. And I definitely feel like Pandas kind of is in the same ballpark and Excel kind of in the same way, you know, it's like this sort of tool where you can just go to it and people know it and, and get going with it. But then I got really excited about you mentioning Ibis like right away, like I'm like, okay, cool. You seem to have a passion for this idea of decoupling tools in some ways. And maybe that comes from the background of what you just said. And sort of, I, I, I don't know, you mentioned, I think in this other talk about removing lock-in. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the idea of decoupling these tools and how that relates into the, is it Ibis or Ibis? We say Ibis. Okay, yeah. Ibis. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's also like the Hope Hotel brand. Like, you know, yeah, I don't know whether it's Ibis Styles or Ibis Styles. You see those, you know, Ibis hotels around the world. Okay, the international yeah. hotel brand. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's, a lot to, there, there's a lot to unpack there. So to go back to the late 2000s or early 2010s, I think the whole Hadoop ecosystem, the, the first wave of open source big data systems was, was driven by this idea of, of decoupling storage and computation. So the idea was that you would put all your data in a large distributed file system that's hosted on commodity hardware, and then you would build these computing engines that would uh, execute jobs on the data in that distributed file system. So you had we had the Hadoop file system, and then we had the original Hadoop MapReduce and Hive, which executed SQL using Hadoop MapReduce, and a whole ecosystem of projects which were largely written in Java that ran on top of the Hadoop file system. And these were all inspired by similar work that Google had done with their you know, GFS distributed file system and Google MapReduce and the original MapReduce paper. And so you already had like this idea of the going moving from the old old school world of the 90s and the 2000s of the vertically integrated data warehouse and so you'd have the storage layer the transactional layer the query engine the query optimizer query planner query front end would be a vertically integrated system with sql on one end and storage systems at the other and okay. so the idea of like starting to break these systems apart so that you can say okay like well let's, let's let the storage be its own system and let's let's have multiple different computing engines and you know you can use sql to talk to these systems or you could write java code or python code or ruby code to write jobs you know i was at cloudera for a couple of years so they they bought my company datapad in 2014 and so i got to be you know work closely with many of the key people in the hadoop ecosystem and so i was exposed to these ideas of you know modularity and composability and 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 disaggregating storage and, and computing and i'd also been deeply affected by the fact that we had to build all of these 
systems and, and libraries ourselves for use in pandas. So we had we were completely on our own. We had to build a whole bad database, like a query engine, like the internals of pandas that does all of its computations. Right. Uh, we had to build all of our own data interfaces to read data into Python, to read CSV files and read data out of SQL databases and do all of this stuff. And so I was really attracted to the idea of being able to reuse software and, and code and systems between different projects. And what I really wanted was like, if you go back to my talks in like the 2015 era, I was talking about, wouldn't it be awesome to have a really high performance C or C++ data frame library that we could use in every programming language that could execute these analytics workloads that we had built ourselves in Pandas, but could be done portably, used in all of the programming languages. And, you know, it just didn't occur to me that I would, and that a few years later, I would be talking about what we now call you know, DuckDB or Data Fusion, or you know, now there's a number of you know, a number of projects, Velox from from Meta. So now, like, we have these reusable execution engines, and yeah. that's what I really wanted back in 2015. I was like, I don't want to have to keep building this stuff myself. Like, I want to work <laughs> with other developers. Yeah, yeah. I want to create these reusable software components so that we can focus on building one reusable piece of really high quality uh, data processing software that can keep getting faster and faster can take advantage of hardware acceleration, use GPUs, all that fun stuff. Like I'd use GPUs in my PhD. So I started a PhD in statistics and we were using in 2011, we were using NVIDIA GPUs to accelerate Bayesian inference. So basically Markov chain Monte Carlo workloads using, using GPUs. And so I'd already seen the potential of using GPUs for accelerating statistical computing workloads. And so it just made sense to me that, that, like clearly the future should look like, you know, we have fewer components, we have more, a lot more data, but the data is being processed by a lot less code. So there's fewer components, less code to maintain, more collaboration, like more investment in these shared, in these shared systems. Seems like there's a, a lot of repeatability that was there. You know, like what I mean by that is that everybody was creating, or a lot of people at the early days in this field, we're creating tools that were not unlike pandas that did kind of everything because they felt like they had to be the one-stop shop that had all the solutions. And it's like kind of a, a bit of a wake-up to this idea that, we, no, we can specialize. We can have GPUs doing this part of it and this doing that part of it. And so I, I kind of like that idea that, again, the decoupling. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's natural for people to build vertically integrated systems because ultimately collaboration is hard yeah yeah <laughs> organizing people to collaborate and cooperate on building shared solutions takes a lot of work and a lot of time and so if you're under a time constraint and you need to deliver a working solution and this is especially true if you're a business so right. imagine you're building a database or some other data processing company you can't afford to spend an extra six months or an extra 18 months uh, investing in some external joint venture or open source collaboration in order to you know ship your product you say okay well you know we're in the interest of expediency and getting a product to market solving a customer's problem like we have to build these things ourselves and get them get them in the, in the customer's users hands as quickly as possible yeah but what, what what happened is that you know by the mid-2010s that we'd already been through multiple eras of that way of working and so what we found was that that many different open source projects were running into the same classes of interoperability, modularity, composability problems. And so in order to 
basically level up and achieve the, the next plateau of performance and scalability, like we were forced to <laughs> stop and, and collaborate with each other to build open standards that would facilitate that collaboration. And so the Apache Arrow project was one concrete thing that came out of that need to establish open source standards for computing engines. So we, in order to build modular reusable computing engines, we needed to have an interoperable data format that was language agnostic and could represent large tabular data sets for these, you know, SQL workloads or data frame operations. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, in some sense, I think people asked at the time, they were like, well, why, why didn't we do this in the 1990s or the 1980s? Like, why are we doing this in 2015? And it was that it, the, the ecosystem, the you know, commercial ecosystem and the open source ecosystem was able to move quickly and make progress and deliver solutions that were essential without needing to get it without needing to solve like those problems or at least like again in the hierarchy of needs kind of what i was talking about earlier early days of python and data analysis in python like the concerns that we were dealing with at that time were so mundane that these like more higher order concerns of like okay well how do we have a fast super fast interoperability format for plugging python into all of these other data systems and computing engines like that was just so far down the road that we couldn't even you know begin to think about it because it would be like solving a problem that doesn't even exist yet yeah so it just uh but it what i've seen is that often these these problems they people arrive at these problems independently and so it was fortunate that i was in a position where i had a lot of social connections, work connections with with many open source developers who all knew each other. And so we were able to bootstrap some of these open source collaborations very efficiently, like all the right people who worked for, you know, major tech companies were able to get together, have high bandwidth conversations about what problems we were seeing in our respective systems and whether we thought that there was a basis for for collaborating and building something together. And there was enough history, track record of working together, goodwill, history of good collaboration, communication that that we were able to solve like the hard social problem of getting new open source collaborations going. Because often that's the hardest part of building these software projects, the social side. I mean, the technical problems by comparison are are much easier, but getting people to get on the same page and be on the same way same wavelength and collaborate with each other is it's really it's really hard like bootstrapping that initial collaboration with somebody you've never worked with before is it's uh it's taking a great leap of faith that you're going to be able to sustain a collaboration for for a period of of many years like i've i'm going on working with Jacques Nadeau on on Arrow and uh and other open source initiatives and i didn't know Jacques very well when we started working on Arrow together but i had a good feeling and he had worked with other people in the community so there was a a good degree of social validation that Jacques was somebody that I could trust. And I got a good feeling in initially working together. And nine years later, that that was a good bet. And we've, we've been able to, to build a lot of, you know, really, um, like, really important stuff together. Posit, makers of Shiny and Quarto, and formerly called RStudio, is the public benefit corporation dedicated to making great open source tools for data science. Let me ask you a question. Are you building awesome things? Of course you are. You're a developer or data scientist. That's what we do. And you need to check out Posit Connect. 
Whether you're building with Streamlit, Shiny, FastAPI, Dash, or Quarto, make deployment the easiest step in your analytics workflows. And ease your IT team's workloads with Posit Connect. You can try Posit Connect for free for three months by going to pos.it slash realpython. Taking that back a little bit, I'm fascinated with Apache Arrow. I think I think that project is really interesting. And I feel like a lot of people are maybe a little confused with what it is and how it kind of fits into this world of databases and this way of kind of working with stuff. And I've tried to describe it myself, this idea of that it's, you know, an in-memory format for your data. In a lot of ways, it's trying to get past some of the bottlenecks of having to push something into a database and pull it back out and all that kind of conversion overhead that ends up just really spinning cycles and so forth. And in some ways, if we could just keep this representation of data in memory, it could just save so much effort. And I don't know if I'm explaining that well or not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. I mean, Arrow solves a number of problems, but yeah, one of the big ones is is avoiding data serialization and data conversion. And so nowadays, you can build a full stack web application with advanced, low latency analytics, querying, filtering, aggregation using DuckDB compiled to WebAssembly in the browser, combined with processing on the back end, which could be anything that speaks Arrow. It could be something written in R and Python and C++. It could be a, a database engine that has, has Arrow compatibility. And so now you can take an Arrow data set from the back end of your full stack web application, send it to the browser in Arrow format, so no need to convert to some intermediate representation to send over, over a WebSocket, and then immediately hand that blob of data off to DuckDB and WebAssembly to process because DuckDB speaks Arrow natively. And so if you went back in time, it, without Arrow, you would need to invent some intermediate data format you know, at each of those stages, say, well, okay, how are we? How am I going to send data to the JavaScript layer of the web application? How would I expose the data from the JavaScript side to DuckDB compiled to WebAssembly? And so, if DuckDB, your web application, and your backend services all used different data formats or used had no standard for talking to each other, if you needed to move a large data set, that would start to become meaningful latency in your application. Like you could just spend hundreds of milliseconds or sec full seconds just doing conversions between these different components in your system. Yeah. And so when you use Arrow, all that uh, conversion and, and latency killing interoperability overhead completely goes away. And we also, I mean, we designed Arrow to be efficient just used by itself within the context of a single system. So we knew like, we needed to have something that where we could move massive amounts of data from component to component in the system, but also there would be benefits to adopting Arrow within a system in that it's it's designed for fast fast processing. You can use it efficiently on modern CPUs, on GPUs. You know, we used our knowledge of how we we learned from the you know the database literature, a lot of the research that have been published in high performance computing about the benefits of the columnar memory layout and how we could design the Arrow format 
to to achieve a high performance uh, way of representing data. And that's it's been almost almost ten years that we've been we've been working on the project, and that's uh, yeah yeah. People are pretty happy, you know, pretty happy with its existence. That's that's great. It's pretty amazing. And you mentioned DuckDB. We also talked briefly about Polars in there and Pandas 2.0. And lots of these platforms are now and and data tools are using Apache Arrow. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And so I guess we can just go start with those in order. So DuckDB, you can think of it as like SQLite for analytics. So an embeddable engine, SQL database. Does it save as a single file the same way? Uh, yeah, so they have an amalgamation, like a single file, you know, duckdb.cpp that you can embed in your application. Okay. So they designed it for portability, zero dependency. You can just drop it into your application and get a full high-performance database engine. It's a columnar database system. It's ba- built off of the ideas of and the research around columnar database, columnar execution engines at uh, CWI in the Netherlands which has been a powerhouse of database research over the last the last 30 years. They, they really wanted to solve this embeddable, high-performance columnar database problem. So we connected early on with, with DuckDB, maybe only two years into the project, and said, hey, we want DuckDB to work really well with Arrow. And so, and so my company, Ursa Computing at the time, uh, which became Voltron Data, we became sponsors of the DuckDB Foundation, and uh, we we established a working relationship with DuckDB Labs, which is the company that consulting company that the DuckDB developers established to support DuckDB. And we put real money behind building the Arrow uh, integration into into DuckDB, so that Arrow would become a native interchange format in lots of different applications for for DuckDB. Are there limitations to the like sizes of like? what a DuckDB database can have? Um, I mean, it's, DuckDB is really good for, it It can execute on, our, if the data can fit on your hard disk, DuckDB can probably do whatever you want with it. Um, it's really good at memory-constrained query execution, something that data frame users, Pandas or Polars users probably experience the pain of running out of memory in some intermediate operation. But like you can tell DuckDB, like I want you to use no more than eight gigabytes of, of RAM, and it will respect your wishes. And you could be running on you know a three hundred gigabyte data set that lives on your your hard disk. So that's super cool. So we've also extended and made modifications to Arrow to kind of bring the the memory format of Arrow like closer together with some of the extensions and ideas that have been built into DuckDB, developed kind of in the database in, in the database literature. So Polar's new data frame library for, for Python, it's written in Rust, Yeah, r- led by Richie Fink. There's a new a company for Polar's now, and it's fully Arrow-based. It's written, it's written in Rust, and um, yeah, it's a you know, really cool project, very fast. You know, it's, it's also like a lot more, this, the API surface area of Polar's is a lot smaller than Pandas, which I think is a good thing in terms of like focusing on performance and scalability and you know, bringing a full lazy expression system to to data frames, yeah, and tying that into Polar's execution engine. There was a third project in there that you mentioned, and I f- I forgot about it already. <laughs> I was just talking about Pandas going to two point and adding Apache Arrow to it. Yeah, so yeah, Pandas two point So one of the the focus areas in Pandas development in recent years has been the extension array uh, subsystem, which uh, allows you to. So initially, Pandas was based on NumPy arrays. 
And we built this whole complicated data management framework uh, in the internals of, of data frames that would merge columns of the same type together. And the one of the motivations was that we wanted to make transposing operations and pseudo like pivot tables and other linear algebra type operations in pandas a lot faster. Okay. That introduced a lot of complexity, but we, you know, we did it. We had reasons at the hashtag reasons at the time. I was wondering if there are financial reasons, like that's your background of like working in, in that world. And I think pivot tables and things like um, that could have been related. Yeah, I think there were, yeah, there were some specific workloads that, that we saw over and over in, in the financial analytics work uh, world that, okay. that definitely influenced my, my thinking there. And af- after I left AQR to go to grad school, I continued to do some consulting work for, for, for them. And so that did influence some directions in the project. But back to, so the extension arrays allow you to have custom array types. So Pandas has introduced arrow strings and other arrow types, um, which has brought new features like nullability to integers and Boolean data types, which has been a, a pain and pain area for Pandas users. And arrow strings provide a lot better memory use and a lot better, a lot faster string processing because string arrays and pandas are pretty bloated. They use Python objects, and so there's a lot of overhead associated with large string arrays. Yeah. And so um, using the arrow string uh, representation makes the string arrays, string columns, a lot more compact and a lot uh, faster for a lot faster for processing. So, so that's definitely very cool, and that's been a big, that was a big focus for the pandas 2.0 release. You know, again, it's because it, it's hard to change things in pandas because we don't want to break we don't want to break uh, people's legacy code, or at least not break it too often. Yeah, and so I, I think early on, I I had you know the hope that we might be able to forge a path for for pandas to become more arrow native more quickly. But we found that well, the develop I didn't do the the work on this, but the development team found that it was not going to be easy to migrate to uh, using arrow backed pandas data frames without introducing too many subtle edge cases and uh, backward compatibility issues. And so it's required a more delicate and um, sort of deliberative approach to um, introduce the arrow-based arrow functionality into Pandas. I think initially it's like an opt-in, and now I think there's some limited cases where it's if PyArrow is installed, that um, that you, you will get uh, arrow, arrow data types out. Yeah, I think of like what NumPy are doing with their version two and you know again changing these core data types and having to kind of look forward and again potentially breaking lots of people's code and and having to be aware that you know hey you're not going to just be able to simply upgrade to numpy 2 you're going to need to really look at your code and make sure that um you know these specific types are (laughs) going to be the same and work inside of it so that is always a challenge yeah i mean another big like chronic problem in pandas is the is the memory doubling issue that you know pandas really wants to own its own memory and copy and uh, copy the the data that you give it and part of that is is defensive copying because for historical reasons there were scenarios where you would create a pandas data frame and then modify that data frame and that would modify some other arrays that you used to create the series of the data frame and so there's a lot of places where we introduced defensive copying so that the user would not, you know, mistakenly, you know, bork some other, <laughs> some other data that they had. But as a result, like it's, it's become pretty difficult to create 
uh, data frame that references some other memory that you have. And it's, it's, you can do it through pretty innocuous actions. You can accidentally, you might have 10 gigabytes of data in memory or five gigabytes of data in memory, and you convert it into a pandas object. And all of a sudden you have double the amount of data and memory because of, of memory copying. And so one of the one of the motivations with the extension array work is to is to make it easier to uh, const- do like zero copy construction of of pandas data frames, so you can avoid that that memory doubling issue. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. How do you make the console output of your Python applications more interesting and attractive to end users? Making your console text-based applications more engaging is the focus of this course. It's titled Unleashing the Power of the Console with Rich, and it's based on a RealPython tutorial by Charles de Villiers. In the course, RealPython instructor Darren Jones shows you how to use the Rich package to enhance the user interface of command line tools and improve the legibility of console output. The course also shows how to create appealing dashboard displays for real-time tabular data, and how to generate well-formatted reports. I think it's a worthwhile investment of your time to learn how this versatile toolkit can enable you to generate beautifully formatted and highlighted text in the console. Real Python video courses are broken into easily consumable sections, and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course you can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. I wonder about the Apache name that's attached to Arrow, and I don't know if, if there's some kind of background there that r- relates it in some way. Yeah, I can I can speak to that. So the Apache Software Foundation uh, came about in the in the 1990s. So I think it was one of the, if not the first, open source foundations, 501c3 nonprofit organization that was created to provide legal protections and other infrastructure in support of open source projects in the 1990s. And so if you go back okay. and you look at the conversations in the in the 90s, there was a lot of concern about attacks or like legal actions from Oracle or from you know, IBM or like other companies who felt threatened by, who felt threatened by open source. Sure. And so the project that led to the creation of the foundation was the Apache web server, which uh, the name actually uh, was a pun. It came from the idea that it was a patchy uh, web server. So like it, <laughs> it had a lot of bugs and so it required like a bunch of, uh, a lot of software patches. And so people had heard the Apache name and, and so that there was a pun there. And so I think they liked that, and that that was how the the name of the the web server came about. Okay, you know, because of the name of the web server, that was the name you initially used for the for the foundation. Of course, it's over the last thirty years, culture has shifted. I think people have justifiable concerns about cultural appropriation and use of um, and use of Native American, you know, language and imagery and associations in these projects. You know, something that's brought up repeatedly has been also a concern in, you know, concern in, in the Arrow project. Many cultures, um, almost all cultures in the world uh, have invented and used arrows, but, you know, putting Apache and Arrow together creates, you know, kind of the unfortunate imagery of like this kind of Native American connotation that, yeah. you know, 
if it were up to us, like we 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 want the the benefits that the the foundation offers us, and and so for for Arrow, you know, we we would like to not have the the concern of the of the cultural appropriation. Like we would be in in support of like a name change for the foundation, and for everyone to create an inclusive community where everyone feels welcome. And you know, I, I it does concern me that that those with Native American heritage might feel they might feel that. Uh, because of this, that that the community is not as inclusive as it could be, but it is something that comes up on a on a frequent basis. Yeah, you know, and it happens to be that the big data community Apache Hadoop, because of the legal protections infrastructure provided by the ASF, um, and the fact that a- the ASF and the Apache Software Foundation has become a trusted brand for corporate contributors to open source because they know what the, when they're contributing to the to an Apache project that they're getting not only the legal protections, the trademark and copyright handling, that the IP is all all clean and is being looked after, but also that there's a governance model in place that is based on openness and transparency, all communications, all project communications, aside from certain private votes about who to give commit access to on projects, those are private. But aside from that, all of the governance of projects is fully open. And so for a cor- corporate contributor looking to get involved in open source, they don't want to come into some open source project that is se- is controlled by some other company that's having private discussions. And so sure. one of the mandates in an Apache project is that all communications have to be public. So that creates this kind of safe space where everyone is playing with their cards up on the table. Okay. And yeah. And so uh, we call it the Apache way. And that that model has has produced these really healthy and thriving you know, thriving communities. So cool. I don't, I don't have a huge horse in the race over the, you know, Apache name, but I, I want to create inclusive, uh, healthy open source communities and to, you know, bring everyone under uh, a happy umbrella where we can collaborate and build, build great software together. Yeah. I feel like, you know, over these years, since you started all these different sort of projects, I wonder if you feel like you've become more of an organizer, uh, a manager and, are you doing as much coding as, as you would like to do? Um, so while, while I was working on my, my recent company, you know, Ursa Labs, then which became Ursa Computing, and then Voltron Data, as we built a 130-person company in three years, and so I, I didn't have too much time for, for coding during that time, and I'm getting back to yeah. my new role at Posit. I'm getting back to doing more, more development and uh, working on some new um, some new open source uh, initiatives. It's been ebb and flow as far as how much time I have for coding. And you're you're absolutely right that that I have been kind of a community organizer, and and I've I recognized early that because the hard problems in open source projects are not necessarily technical problems; they're actually social problems. That building relationships with people, especially long term relationships, trying to find the right people to collaborate with, spending a lot of time to make sure that you understand each other, that you're communicating well, that you're on the same, same wavelength in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. But I found that, that influencing other people and recruiting other people to a common shared understanding of what we're trying to build and, and getting on that on the same page, that, that that pays great dividends. And finding and recruiting people to work with me, I, I view that as like arguably more important than the code that I produce. Obviously, I love I love writing code and doing development work. And I've had periods where I've been enormously productive and, 
you know, churned out, churned out tons of code and tons of pull requests. But yeah, yeah, I think that the community development work, it, it yields a lot greater benefits over time, because if you find the right people to work with, they, they also recruit other people to, you know, to work with them. And so if you just look at the Pandas project, yeah, I think Jeff Reback and Joris Vandenbosch and Phil Cloud and Mark Garcia, they've all been just amazing in terms of community development. And I, you know, I tip my hat to them. I think Pandas wouldn't be anything like it is now without their contributions to building, building that community. And so, yeah, I think uh, that community, that, that community organization work, it's, yeah. I, I think in open source, it's, it's everything. And um, I think, you know, from the outside, often people think, oh, well, it's, you know, these, you know, lone wolf hackers in their, in their attic, you know, writing code late at night and on weekends. And, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a, it, there is, there is a lot of privilege attached with, with doing open source development because many professional software engineers can't afford to do, can't afford to do open source work on their nights and weekends because they have families or they have other jobs or they have other responsibilities or, um, they're, they're too tired, you know, they're too tired to do open source work. I've had many days where I'm like, I <laughs> yeah. can work on GitHub issues, but I'm too tired today. And not everyone can get permission from their jobs or the, the space at work to to be able to contribute to open source. So naturally, you know, it, there's there's definitely, um, you know, like diversity problems in, in open source. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's uh, I think for, for a long time, it's been a really privileged activity to, to be in a place where you can do open source development. Yeah. And so, yeah. I think about that a lot. Like I think about just in my time, I started the podcast, you know, almost exactly four years ago, right at the start of the pandemic and just trying to get people to come on the show to talk uh, the amount of bandwidth that these people had to be able to show up and do something like this to talk about their projects, to talk about what they're doing and, and watching organizers of conferences kind of go through the same thing and and what you're talking about of these different projects. And so it's just, you have to be in a really sort of special spot to be able to, like you said, contribute. And it's fantastic if you can, but like trying to get more people involved is 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 hard, you know? And it's going to be always one of these things that, what are the benefits that they're going to get out of it and you know how much can they invest into it and and so but i definitely appreciate everything that you've been working on and and being a champion for do you want to talk a little bit about uh ibis a little bit deeper because i I, we kind of touched on it off and on and i'm very fascinated I, i i mentioned lots of times on the show about being an r programmer for a little bit and what fascinated me about it and i i loved about it was definitely the sort of tidyverse stuff and dplyr and so when I saw Ibis, I was like, oh, this looks really cool and has a lot of the same kind of stuff. And just a note, I, I, I wonder about projects like this sometimes that I feel like have been a little bit under the radar. Like, I feel like it, it, it's not something that I hear a lot about. I'm not traveling in a lot of data science circles lately. I try to get more guests involved, but I, I wonder about, you know, not only getting a project started like this, but also like promoting it, which goes back to like the whole open source thing. Yeah. But anyway, maybe we could just talk about what it is and, and then we could talk about the project yeah, itself. Sure, sure. Yeah, so so IBIS is a, um, it's a Python library. It provides a an API for, for data frame operations, like building lazy data frame expressions, table expressions, basically interacting with a wide spectrum of database engines and other data processing systems. 
And so the idea of the project was to create a like a portable query layer similar to what dplyr and dbplyr in, in R has become, providing enabling you to write a, an expression, a data frame expression in R or a data frame expression with IBIS and Python. And then based on what execution engine you're using, it will generate the appropriate SQL query or translate it to the appropriate you know, pandas or polars function calls to execute that, execute that operation. So the project started in late 2014 uh, when I was at when I was at Cloudera. And the the idea was that I was looking to build Python interfaces to these big data systems. And I didn't want to build these one-off APIs for a single execution engine. So like I wanted to have a common API that was data frame-like or pandas-like, but that had really robust support for SQL because I had written a lot of SQL early in my career. And so I'd seen the horrors of um, maintaining large, you know, thousand line or hundred line SQL queries. And so I wanted to have the ability to write complex SQL a lot more easily to have reusability and the features of a modern programming language like Python when I'm writing complex SQL queries. But then I also wanted to have this this bridge between the data frame world and the SQL and, and big data uh, big data analytics world. So the project started late 2014, initially had support for Impala because I was working with the Impala SQL uh, engine team at, at Cloudera. It was a, a bit of a sleeper project when we when we launched it. And Philip Cloud, who I had worked with for several years on, on Pandas, was like one of the key Pandas core team developers, uh, was at Facebook in, in that era. And he was also suffering from massive you know, Hive SQL and uh, and other SQL data warehouse stuff at Facebook, and so he got interested in IBIS uh, in because it was solving similar problems that he was seeing. Nice uh, SQL maintainability, scalability problems at at Facebook, and so he jumped in and added Postgres support. Uh, somebody at, at some point uh, contributed BigQuery support and ClickHouse support. Then some folks at the Google Cloud team picked up. IBIS and started using it to build some internal tools and data quality tools for BigQuery. And so for a period of several years, like there were not a lot of users of IBIS and we continued to add features and refine its internals. And it was this kind of project flying under the radar. But then in 2017, 2018, like we started using IBIS to build like a pretty serious system at Two Sigma where Philip and I then then worked. And so that that brought like a bunch of new development energy into the project. There was some development from used to be called MapD, then OmniSci, now Heavy AI. So that was a GPU database system. So they built the, so they contributed some development. Google contri- continued to contribute for a period of several years. And then fast forward to 2021. So we started Voltron Data and um, really making big investments in making the whole data stack more modular and composable. And it was clear that the query layer, how we interact with all these different systems and, and provide for modularity at the user interface level of writing queries and writing these analytical operations that we needed a solution for that. And so we made an early commitment at Voltron Data to make a big investment in IBIS and to build a team around it. And so the project, if you look at its GitHub history, there's a big spike in 2021 where we started, we hired Philip and um, he leads uh, a growing team there which has made an enormous investment in modernizing IBIS and, and uh, building it to now it supports 20 different 
execution backends, and uh, it does you know it can do real time nice. SQL processing with Flink, and it can run against all the different data warehouses, Snowflake and BigQuery and Redshift, and it, it can generate Spark SQL. It uh, it's grown into a quite large project, but still, it I think it's it's um, a little bit unknown in many areas of the the Python community. So we've so Philip and his team have have been doing a lot of work on creating content live streams on YouTube and blog posts. And uh, if you go to the ibisproject.org website, there's a lot of really cool blog posts where you can see the things that they've been building uh, more recently. And um, it's actually the emergence of DuckDB and DuckDB becoming this amazing, ubiquitous uh, data processing tool has made Ibis a lot more useful because now you've got a, you know, high performance, um, High performance uh, database engine that historically would have been squirreled away inside a cloud data warehouse or a commercial database that you can pip install and use on your use on your laptop to work with massive data sets. And Ibis gives you a really powerful Python API for generating complex DuckDB queries and really nice integration with DuckDB. So that gives you a, a pretty powerful uh, toolkit right at your fingertips. When you think about the the workflow there. Again, we were talking about pandas earlier with this idea of like having to write, you know, read CSV and having this idea of like having to move data into this other data frame kind of working relationship. This allows it to just be literally a, a much friendlier query type language going right against the d- database as opposed to it having to be brought into data frames and having to have these uh, other representations of the data in memory. Am I thinking of that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the way you can think about it is that we we built, we designed IBIS for a high degree of SQL compatibility. So the idea was that if you can do it in SQL, okay. you, there should be a way to express the same thing in, in IBIS. So we wanted there to be no loss of functionality going from SQL to writing, doing the same work in IBIS. But we provide, because we built IBIS in Python, so we could build in like a layer of type checking and validation and uh, you know code reuse. And so if you think about the stuff that people are currently doing with dbt for example where they're writing sql queries and then inserting jinja templates into their sql queries to generate these complex sql strings so you can actually do the same stuff in ibis but you are writing all python functions and building building things using modern python programming techniques and you get you get type validation and type checking all throughout the process so if you ever make an error you get a nice error message right away telling you exactly what you did wrong and why the expression doesn't work rather than, you know, I'm sure people have been frustrated working with some large SQL string where you make a mistake and there's like some error from, you know, parse error in the SQL string or some type error. And so we wanted to create like a more, a lot more productive and more pleasant experience for, for doing industrial, industrial SQL. So things that are a lot more complicated than select star. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, it has a, a similar sort of, uh, I don't want to call it piping, but it, it has the idea of the dot notation to be able to like chain multiple things together, which reminds me of working in R and, and the tidyverse kind that's, of stuff. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So you can think of it as as being like like dplyr for like dplyr for Python. Yeah. I think it has it has a much larger scope and in, in terms it's it aspires to be a lot more SQL compatible than than dplyr. So that's like a, a design difference, but yeah. But I think IBIS and and Polars have converged on a 
pretty similar way of working in that it's expression-based, everything is lazy, you build these expressions, and then you, you have the control over when it's, uh, when it's executed. And so that's, I honestly, like SQL is not going anywhere. And I think the best thing that we can do is, is turn SQL into basically the assembly language of databases. So a thing that is, a thing that is machine generated, but humans don't have to interact with. Sure. Very, very much. One of the things that I, I thought was interesting in that same talk you were talking about was the ending the language wars. I feel like that's such a common thing that happens. You know, people get in, involved in these sort of like flame wars over to like, you know, what we should be using here and, and so forth. And I, I wonder what, you know, who are the casualties of, the, of these wars uh, when you think about it? Yeah, I, I feel like it. the language wars, for example, between Python and R have, I mean, have led to like a lot of bad feelings and and um, like grumpiness and like hostility would be like a strong word, but generally just like unfriendliness between yeah. developers in these communities. And so I think Hadley Wickham and I recognized early on that the the language wars were were kind of stupid, and you know we're all solving the same problems. And yes, we've made different technology decisions on how we solve these problems, but we stand to gain more from from working together and sharing ideas, and if possible, sharing code and and solutions to problems than than competing with each other. And so when you know when I I uh, was um, just helping start Arrow. I got together with Hadley and said, you know, what can we do with this to make the language wars get get better? And uh, so we created the Feather format. So it was a quick, quick uh, two-week project to create a file format based on Arrow. And that was hugely useful to show the benefits of sharing technology between the R and Python community. And that initial collaboration in 2016 has led to, you know, almost a decade-long partnership between me and you know, our studio now, now posit. And so they helped me create Ursa Labs and put huge amounts of funding into aero development. You know, they helped me incubate Ursa Computing. You know, they're a shareholder in Voltron Data. And, uh, you know, again, if I'd adopted the language war posture of like, I'm not going to work with anybody in the R community, then that, that whole collaboration, you know, would never have happened. And, and uh, who knows what, yeah. who knows where I'd be now, but I'm glad that I, embrace the you know building building bridges and not walls and and working to for the, the benefit of building that you know, that idea of the shared data science runtime and these reusable components that can be the rising tide that, that lifts all boats yeah do you want to talk a little bit about your role at posit and, and the kinds of yeah. things that you're working on there so posit is a so around a 300 person company it was formerly known as as uh, our studio and it was founded in 2009. So initially, they uh, they built the R Studio IDE, and they've uh, over the course of many years have uh, company has grown. They've built a whole enterprise product suite that supports open source data science teams. Uh, initially, R R focused to start, but since have evolved to be a polyglot language agnostic computing data science company. So they rebranded the company to reflect their growing into a polyglot computing company. Have been adding support for uh, Python Python-based teams to their uh, enterprise products. Uh, have been making some investments in open-source Python development, for example, porting the Shiny framework for R to to Python for building uh, reactive and scalable web applications uh, from from Python. They've you know funded Arrow development, which has helped with 
modularity and interoperability between the R and Python ecosystem, built a reticulate package, which helps with building hybrid R Python applications. And so I'm, so I'm doing a few things there. So I'm a software architect, so I'm providing product feedback, design and development work across numerous products in, uh, in Posit's umbrella, helping with the roadmap and feature set and helping boost the Python support and, and orient the company's Python strategy to, to benefit uh, data science teams. They've also afforded me a lot of uh, bandwidth to work on, continue to work on open source projects, which I greatly appreciate. Yeah. I think Posit's one of, you know, has one of the largest fully, you know, open source software development teams. They have a you know, large team there that does nothing but build open source. And so, you know, I'm able to, one of, one of the reasons why, you know, I wanted to rejoin Posit was to uh, to have that platform to be able to dedicate a large fraction of my time to open source development, but also to have the exposure to the enterprise data science problem so that I could see what's going on inside l- large companies, large data science teams to understand what we need to build on the open source side to really empower data scientists to be more successful in the enterprise. Because really the struggle is not R versus Python, it's open source versus closed source. Sure. and the vision that I share with, you know, JJ Lair, the founder of, of Posit and, uh, and, and folks like Hadley Wickham and Joe Chang is that we, we really want the world to be built on uh, open source software and open standards. And so I believe that, that uh, you know, Posit is a place where I can, I can do my best work and I'm excited to uh, yeah, spend the next, you know, potentially the rest of my career there. I mean, it's, it's a place that I, I believe can be a hundred, hundred year company and aspires to be a hundred year company. And as a place where I have, I have resources and uh, really smart people to work with and my work in building open source is aligned with the, the mission and values of the company. So I'm so very excited, you know, for kind of this next, next leg, leg of my career. And I will try to be as useful as I can and continue to build open source and, and help the open source uh, data science uh, mission succeed. Yeah, that's awesome. Wes, I have these questions I like to ask everybody who comes on the show. And the first one is, what's something that you're excited about that's happening in the world of Python? I'm pretty excited about the rustification <laughs> of Python. Yeah, yeah. I think there's two, two really cool companies that are building tools for making Python development better. Uh, so Astral, which builds the rough linter, and uh, Prefix.dev, which is started by Wolf uh, Fulprecht, who uh, created Mamba, like a faster conda. Yeah. And so they're all working in Rust. And so combining the ideas that have percolated the Rust community and bringing that kind of ethos and developer productivity mindset to Python, I think can only lead to, lead to good things. I recently configured rough and LSP and all the fun things, my Emacs environments. Now I have all these fancy new development aids that I didn't have in the past and I already feel more productive. So that's cool. Yeah, I think it's obviously that plus the use of generative AI, copilot and things in the development workflow. I think we're, you know, headed to really good places as far as developer productivity and a more, you know, pleasant uh, and productive day-to-day working environment. I had a, a listener send in a question to me he was wondering, is it hype that Rust is so popular? You know, like what, what's going on with it? And so we spent like a discussion section of, of the last show that we did. You know, all I can say is that the people that I speak to on the show that are developers that are out there working in the community, they're excited about it. 
I don't know if you would call it hype. It's definitely one of these things that it's a tool and you don't necessarily need to learn it to get everything you want out of it. You know, there's lots of benefits of people using it and it's just a, a modern language in, in so many ways. So I don't know how, how you feel about that. Uh, yeah, no, I think, I think there is a learning curve to developing in Rust, but, but once you climb that initial learning curve, like what I've seen is that, that development teams are, developers are happier and more productive. And so my, my former co-founder, Chang Shi, he, uh, he has a new company, LanceDB, building a, a file format for vector databases and a you know, software as a service vector database solution. And they started out building Lance and C++. And over the holidays, they you know, said, well, what if we do this in Rust? And they found that they really loved Rust. And all of the friction that you experience with C++ development environments around packaging and tool chain and compilation and all those things, that a lot of that friction goes away. And so to have a modern system, systems language with a really nice development environment, tool chain and, and tooling like the LSP and the feedback that you get in the development, like the IDE support in Rust is really good. And so ultimately, I think it's about building good system software and, um, and having productive development teams. And Rust has done a really good job of that. So I, I think the hype is... I think the hype is justified. I've only written a smidgen of Rust code. And um, so I, I don't feel like I've used Rust enough to really render a judgment, but I just seeing other people around me and how how happy they are uh, to be de- developing in Rust. I, I think it is, it's uh, more than just hype. Yeah, I think that's uh, an, an immeasurable thing that, <laughs> that you can't ignore uh, happiness of your developers. <laughs> yeah. So what's something that you want to learn next? This doesn't have to be about programming. I've always been a like a lifelong foreign language learner. Okay. Lately, I've been learning French and Italian, and so yeah, I'm interested to learn learn more of those. And um, I, when I have the opportunity to, are you using any specific tools for that? Um, I find tutors on Italki. Uh, maybe some listeners have heard of Italki. It's like a oh. language tutor marketplace, and so I've had a good experience with. Okay. With that, studying and since I've you know been studying languages since I was a teenager, and so you know being able to have a Skype call or a Google Meet call with a, a foreign language tutor, I, I've found a good way to learn. It does require you to do your homework and yeah. consume consume media and read and and get exposed to the, to the to the language you're trying to learn. But yeah, yeah, but that's fun. I'm trying to think what else I'm trying to learn. Yeah. Yeah, there's a commitment there that if there's a person waiting for you to to show up, exactly. It's like, what did you do this week? I always think about that with guitar lessons and piano lessons or things like that. It's like, yeah, they'll know right away if you've practiced. <laughs> yeah, and I'm learning. I'm yeah, outside of and programming things, I'm interested in learning Rust and and uh, and and learning learning TypeScript finally. So, and I you know tinkering with tinkering with DuckDB Wasm, okay, which uh, the kind of the WebAssembly version of DuckDB, and so that's hence the Hence the TypeScript, and yeah, I'm, I'm having a good time doing that. Yeah, how can people follow the work that you do online? You can follow me on. Uh, I have my my website westmckinney.com, and okay, I still use the, I still post things occasionally on the website, formerly known as Twitter. Um, can't say I approve of Twitter's new management, but it's sad that that, that Twitter is not, is not what it once was. But I don't know yeah. uh, what is what is going to replace it. And so I hope that something does replace it and that there is, again, a, a public forum where we can share things and, and stay in touch with each other. LinkedIn is also great. I think 
a lot of people have stopped using Twitter and have been using LinkedIn a lot more. And so I do try to post things on LinkedIn as well. Yeah. So feel free to reach me on those, on those platforms. Okay. Outside of that, I do podcasts and uh, I do, I'm going to be speaking at more conferences, you know, as part of my, part of my role at Posit. Uh, look forward to seeing people in person. Yeah. I learned that you are a fan of video games. And so I thought I'd just throw this one in there. Uh, what video game are you currently playing? I'm, I would say I'm in between games. I, okay. I'm about halfway through playing Alan Wake 2, which is great, but uh, it can only be consumed in small doses because, it, you know, it's like hard to play right before going to bed, like, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, having your sleep disrupted. But yeah, it's a little intense. I love retro video games. And so I often like, I like to, to revisit classic games. And so I was, I really enjoyed replaying the remaster of Metroid Prime, which uh, came out when I was 17. And so to replay it at 38 is, you know, with on, on my switch and, you know, all that has, has been super fun. So I don't have as much time for video games as I used to, but I, for me, it's like a, yeah, it's, it's like a way of unwinding and it's, a, it's like a stress relieving kind of thing. So it takes your brain to a different place, which is always yeah. kind of good. Yeah. Except for, uh, you know, like you said, playing intense games before bedtime. <laughs> cool. Well, Wes, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been fantastic to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. And thanks again to Posit. Posit Connect helps make deployment the easiest step in your analytics workflows. Learn more about Posit Connect and try it for free for three months at pos.it slash realpython. I want to thank Wes McKinney for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python Podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python Podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.